Tank. Yes. How important is Cash, not only to me personally, but to our podcast? Oh, he's integral. Integral. He's the CEO of Psychopedia. I love him and I would do anything for him, but vet bills get very expensive. So fast. Especially when it's an emergency vet bill. So here's the good news. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Oh, I've heard about insurance before. I've never had it. With Spot Plans, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. That could be a whole lot of cash back for unexpected vet bills, which can pile up fast. Question, is that cash with a K or? (laughs) Funny. Spot Pet Insurance plans don't just offer coverage for unexpected accidents and illnesses. You can add their preventative care benefit to your plan, helping to ensure that routine wellness, vaccines, and more can be covered. Which will save you money in the long run, probably. Yes. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit www.spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductible, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome back to another episode of the Psychopedia Podcast. I am your on-fire co-host, Tank Sinatra, here with my partner in true crime. Investigator Slater. And boy, am I dressed to the nines again. I know. Jeans, two weeks in a row. Jeans and a belt. To what do we owe this honor? (laughs) Why are you so dressed up, dude? Why? I take this shit serious. I know. You're leveling up. I feel like in my Dress for the job you want. Extra, extra large sweatpants over here. It's maybe not making the cut anymore. Yeah, you're a little behind the times. I mean, we're fucking, we might wind up on the Jimmy Fallon show. You never know. Okay, well, I won't wear these pants then. In your defense, I would probably wear the same thing I'm wearing now. I know, you definitely would. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I ask you what you're wearing, like when we're going someplace in Iced, you're like, regular clothes? Yeah, regular clothes. I have, if you couldn't guess from your experiences with me on the podcast and our 20-year history of knowing me, I hate that question. What? What are you wearing? What are you wearing? Well, you're not a girl. We love that question. But my friend used to ask me what I was wearing, and I'd be like, what the fuck do you care? Well, it's not a matter of caring. Sometimes it's like, well, I just want to make sure that I have this right, that like the vibe tonight beckons a full tuxedo, for example, maybe in your friend's case. Like he's he's double checking. mm, I don't know. It, It reminds me of when I used to wait tables and... Somebody in the middle of the order, I'm standing there waiting, probably sweating because I'm fucking huge and mm-hmm. I'm, I run hot. <laughs> and they'd look at their friend or somebody at the table and go, what are you going to get? Oh, my father is the worst. And I used to be like, well, he's going to eat it with his mouth and you're going to eat it with your mouth. So why don't you just choose what you want to put in your mouth and then we'll be good. So here's what I'm going to say to that. Yes. You are very lucky <laughs> in that you're a very confident guy. 
you don't care what other people are doing, what other people are wearing, what other people are ordering. You are you day, night, Tuesday, Sunday. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, you are always you regardless. So you know what you're wearing and it's not even a second thought, but somebody else maybe doesn't have that confidence. So they're so checking there's, in. There's people out there who don't know what to wear. So they're like, what are you wearing? It's not that they don't know what to wear. I mean, that could be. It's more along the lines of. They want to fit in. Yes, exactly right. Oh, all right. Exactly. Well, I can speak like from the perspective of a woman. For example, the charity event I went to at the animal shelter with yeah. my friend, we checked in with each other. Like, Something like that. Three times. I might ask. We were going to the sound factory for the 30th time in a row. <laughs> and I just like, I'm going to wear the same thing I wore the last 29 times. Light up shoes. Light up shoes. Jeans. Tight black shirt that I'll be checking at the coat check. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm bringing a jump rope, dude. And I don't know why. <laughs> such a fucking mess. Oh, man. Well, what's up, you little fucking psychos? You ready for a banger of an episode? Ooh, yeah. This is a banger of a case. I obviously don't know what it is. I'm listening to it for the first time, but I can just tell it's got some fucking spice on it. It's got some legs. You seem excited. I'm, I'm always excited, though, to be fair. Well, yeah, but... I j maybe I'm excited. Maybe. You had a nice nap before I arrived. I did. A solid one-hour nap. That'll do it. Just zonked out after the uh, two Little League games and church attendance and just... We went to go see Nate Bargatze last night. Oh, how was... How was... Fucking incredible. Hilarious, right? It was unbelievable. It was at Radio City Music Hall. And here's what I learned, and then we'll we'll start recording. I didn't realize how much of a specific type of crowd people draw. Mm-hmm. I went to go see Andrew Huberman at the Beacon Theater. And I feel bad saying this because he gave me tickets that I brought my sister. She loves him. Like, wants to marry him. Younger or older sister? Younger sister. And when we got there, it was like mean, socially awkward nerds. The whole place. <laughs> was, it reminded me of Zeta Sai, the frat that I got fucking... Oh, my God. That got me kicked out of University <laughs> of Maryland. <laughs> and then I went to go see Chris Stefano at Radio City two weeks ago. And his, with all due respect, crowd is like dirtbag, blue collar, Staten Island. Yo, Christy fucking. And they, they don't know him. They're just like yelling. I actually had to tell people behind me to shut up. Wow. Because they wouldn't stop talking the whole time. Mm. Like it was during the opener. So I turned around. I was like, hey, I want you guys to have fun. I'm not trying to ruin your energy, but can you just not talk that loud or like maybe keep it down a little bit because like I can't hear the comedian and I was in fucking Radio City jeez shut What'd the they fuck say? up were they cool about it they didn't say anything back they were just like oh sorry, oh sorry, God, sorry. this guy's too fucking big they're like oh sorry 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 I think people don't like to your point about people not knowing what to wear and being confident and whatever there's also a whole group of people in the world that never do anything out in public and don't know how to act oh so they're like little feral animals yes on the loose much. in Radio City Nate Bargatze's crowd, Mike Vecchione opened for him. Mike Vecchione is fucking unbelievable at comedy. He's so good. So he opened for him. Then Nate Bargatze's dad, who is a magician clown, performed a whole set. He was unbelievable. And then Nate fucking crushed. And his crowd was like sweater vests with a polo under it, like <laughs> yeah. golfing. They just came from golfing. They were going to, you know, Nobu after that. It was just a very, very different crowd. Everyone sat there with their hands folded. Oh. Like nice little boys and girls. What do you think <laughs> our crowd will look like when we eventually tour? Freaks! Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you guys better bring it. Well, you know what else I learned? And this will wrap this up. I was at all three of those. So what does that say about you? Exactly. Right. I don't know. It says that I love what I love. Exactly. But that's, you are blessed with confidence and you can fit in with anyone, anywhere. Yeah. A lot of people don't have that. So that's why they check in with their friends before going out. With the King Tank. Mr. Yeah. Wardrobe. I want to get into this case because yeah. it's a good one. Yeah. Okay. I just have to read off a couple of these little semen demons names from the Patreon because I know they're waiting out there drooling and rubbing their hands together like baby in the window from that meme. You do that while I wake up Cash because he is snoring. Okay. We got Megan Marcunis, Rebecca Jaffe, Kelsey Carrero. Fucking get a load of this one. Psychopedia Patty. He commented on the Patreon post where I said, where's everyone from? We're going to be having someone come out, which is so old, but I just leave it. Where do you think he said he's from? Um, Dublin. Okay. I was going to say Ireland. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> it's Psychopedia Patty with an Irish flag as his name. Sick. Sophia Edelman, Sarah Furenbacher. These people are going to love these pronunciations of their name. Mandy Becker, Kill Kit Cox. <gasps> Israel Keys. A real peach of shabizness. Cal Aduzzi. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, just a fan. Jennifer, just a family. It's okay. Sabrina May. DD. Tater T. Of these names, I'm fucking, I just, I don't, I'm flops with three S's. Hillary Skinner, Robert Washburn, and that's it for today. So shout out to all you. Thank you for joining us on the Patreon. You can join us over there. <gasps> Wait, there's one more. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Yes. Relax your gen. <laughs> yeah. J-E-N. That was a good one. Relax your Jennifer Attils. <laughs> yeah. So you can join us over at patreon.com slash psychopediapod if, and only if, you like what you're getting here, but you're not getting enough of it. And you feel like you need a little extra hit every week. That's what we give you over there. Psychopedia Unhinged. No pressure, but we are making content for you over there. And over there, I run the show. So I think it's better. <laughs> Do you? No, I don't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it is more fun. It is. It's just a different type of fun. I have so much fun in our regular episodes. It's probably not normal. It is a different type of fun. Yeah. Because I don't have to think right now. Right. How, yeah. What's that like? Um, you tell me uh, when we record the Patreon. Excuse me. <laughs> I am always thinking. Excuse me. So am I. Okay. Yeah. That's why we go together. That's true. I can see why they put us together. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, without further shabizness, let's get into this week's case. Let's do it. On December 1st, 1999, an eerie tension hung heavy in a Costa Mesa, California police interrogation room. Within its confines, Omaima Nelson, a young woman fraught with nerves, restlessly paced the space for an agonizing four hours. Upon her initial arrival at the police station, Omaima delivered an unsettling narrative to law enforcement. She indicated that her husband, Bill Nelson, raped her and possibly other women as well, and that he'd also just killed someone. Oh my God. Omaima did indeed display bruises and cuts on her arms, head, and breast. However, what she clearly did not display were defensive wounds. Amidst her restless pacing in the interrogation room like a startled creature backed into a corner, Omaima's demeanor underwent a sudden and bizarre transformation. During this disconcerting episode, she started speaking about herself in the third person while delivering a disjointed narrative about a hallucination she had recently experienced involving ancient Egyptians covered in blood who did their bidding through her. A comprehensive sexual assault examination was, of course, conducted given Omaima's very serious allegation of marital rape. 
and much like the absence of defensive wounds in Omaima's external injuries, her sexual assault examination similarly indicated an absence of recent trauma, both vaginally and anally. Something was definitely off here. I hate to think that she's in there trying to report a crime. I don't know what happened, obviously. I don't know this case. But being a police officer in that situation where someone's telling you they were raped, you want to take it seriously, and then all of a sudden they start telling you about Egyptians, mm. you got to be like, fuck, I don't well, you know. Yeah, I don't really want to do the paperwork if she's seeing Egyptians. Right. Everything starts to get very clear for law enforcement very quickly. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but I understand in that moment exactly what you're saying. And you said she was there for four hours pacing? Four hours pacing the interrogation room. So as I said, something was definitely off. Either way, she's suffering especially in light of what was uncovered at Omaima's Eastside apartment. Because when law enforcement entered the residence, they were greeted by a scene of utter disorder and chaos, like what you might expect to see in the aftermath of a raging tornado. As they ventured further into the apartment with the forensic team, a sequence of increasingly disconcerting revelations came to light. It began with the discovery of a single crimson droplet of blood on a doorknob, followed by a small pool of blood puddled on the carpet. And in the bedroom was a mattress so thoroughly soaked in blood that it permeated through the core of the box spring. Oh, my God. Amongst the copious amounts of blood, tissue, and carnage, it was clear that this apartment held dark secrets that demanded unraveling. That's how my youngest son's bed is, but with pee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Stop drinking so much. I mean, maybe you should cut off the water supply. We try. And yeah. he starts crying about being thirsty. It's maybe like, it's well, his breathing. Maybe it's the McDonald triad. Oh, God. I wasn't going to say it. Because by this point, forensic analysts had conclusively determined that the surplus of blood, alongside the other grim discoveries we will delve into found in virtually every nook of the apartment, belonged unmistakably to Omaima's husband, Bill Nelson. Oh, boy. Which, of course, begged... Oh, Mima. <laughs> oh, but So this begged the chilling questions. What had befallen Bill Nelson, and where in the world was his missing body? How do you spell Omaima? O-M-A-I-M-A. All right, I just want people to be able to spell it in the comments when they start using Omaima instead of, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the ruthless perpetrator we are examining today has drawn disturbing comparisons to notoriously twisted figures like Jeffrey Dahmer and more. Today, we are discussing the heinous actions of Omaima Nelson, former Egyptian model turned mariticidal maniac which is a fancy new term that I learned and needed to flex. I thought you were going to say a fancy new term that I made up. <laughs> no. We'll be delving into the nightmarish landscape of murder, mutilation, decapitation, dismemberment, female circumcision, castration, and to top it all off, cannibalism. If you said, hey, Tank, I'm done telling you what the story's about. I need you to make up the rest. I would simply jump out the window. <laughs> Yeah, well... I can't even imagine what I'm about to hear. Okay, well... Murder, mutilation, decapitation, dismemberment, female circumcision, castration... Cannibalism. Cannibalism. Yep, yep. This so, fuck, what the fuck? What the fuck? I'm going to tell you what the fuck. I just wanted to say what the fuck, because that's what's going on. Yeah, let it out. My heart right now. Let it out. Just as a general trigger warning, 
This case is considered to be one of the most gruesome and notorious crimes ever committed in Orange County, California. How are there so many of these crimes that I have... That you haven't heard of, right? And this also was in the 90s. But still, it's when you hear it, you're going to wonder why this isn't like a cautionary tale for every single person on the planet to have to hear. Omaima Arif was born in 1968 in a poor farming village in Egypt near the border of Sudan. She had a very difficult early life, having been both physically and sexually abused by her very violent father. Oh, boy. At just seven years old, Omaima was subjected to female genital mutilation, which is as awful as it sounds. Female genital mutilation, which is shortened to FGM, refers to procedures involving the partial or total removal of the female external genitalia and or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. Regrettably, this brutal act is commonly inflicted on girls ranging from infancy to 15 years of age, often administered by untrained individuals in non-sterile settings, typically without the use of anesthetics. Societies where FGM is prevalent are often adhering to deeply ingrained cultural, social, and sometimes religious customs, rendering it a very complex issue to address. FGM supposedly serves various purposes within these societies, with some considering it to be a pivotal rite of passage, while others do it to intentionally curtail a girl's sexual autonomy and safeguard her chastity. But regardless of the reason, FGM constitutes a profound infringement on the fundamental human rights of girls and women, including their right to health, safety, and personal dignity. It is both cruel and unusual and of particular relevance to today's case, can profoundly affect the psychological well-being of the young girls subjected to such atrocities, causing lasting traumatization or trauma and potentially leading to behavioral issues as well, and also heightened feelings of anxiety and depression. My son is six. If he wasn't circumcised and someone stopped by and said, hey, I'm going to cut the tip of your fucking son's dick off. With no anesthesia and for no reason other than we think it's something that should be done. I would fight them to the death. Yeah. I would literally fight them to the death. You have the luxury, for lack of a better way of saying it, to be in the culture that you're in where that would be something I think most people would have your back and (sighs) and you don't see that obviously happening. I mean, you could not pick a worse age to do that. No. The global scale of this issue is staggering. I've heard of it happening in other countries, but any time I've ever heard of it, it's given me serious pause. There's an estimated 200 million girls and women worldwide having endured some form of FGM. And disturbingly, projections indicate that by 2030, 68 million girls will be at risk of undergoing this harmful, savage, and sickening practice, which means it will surpass current numbers. Getting back to the case... Omaima's parents ended up divorcing when she was still pretty young, thankfully, which led Omaima and her mother to move to a different village in Cairo known as the City of the Dead or Cairo Necropolis. Pop quiz, because I got to shake you out of this headspace. Please do. Why is this historic area of Egypt called City of the Dead? A, living inhabitants coexist and share space with the dead. B, the high crime rate of the region makes death as likely as survival. Mm. C, the highest number of killers per capita in the country of Egypt originates from this region. B. No. 
Oh, right. Starting off strong. <laughs> um, A. Yes. They cohabitate with oh, dead people. Okay, I need to tell you a little bit about this place. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina. I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The City of the Dead is a centuries-old slum encompassing approximately four miles and entirely surrounded by graves, tombs, and mausoleums. It's a place where about 500,000 living inhabitants coexist with about one million deceased inhabitants. Wait, okay, so hold on. Are they leaving the dead people in their houses and stuff? Yes. Oh, boy. Their homes are nestled amidst burial plots. No, 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 no. I'm trying to get a picture here. Well, can I help paint it? Yes. Okay. You have to picture this. You can look it up. You can Google it, right? There's one picture that sticks out in my mind. It's a woman in her kitchen cooking. Uh And in the middle of her kitchen is a tombstone. Okay. That's very weird, but not as bad as what I thought it was. Oh, what were you thinking? I thought they just, if someone died, they just left him in the house. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, that's so much more unrealistic than what you told me. (laughs) decomposing body in the middle of somebody's home? Hey, this is psychopedia. Anything can happen. (laughs) Fair enough. I don't know. At the age of 18, Omaima crossed paths with an American contract oil worker while he was stationed in Cairo. So... Just to backtrack, right? So she and her mother moved out away from her father who was sexually and physically abusing her. She had already had her genitals mutilated by that point. But for the rest of her childhood, she grew up in the city of the dead with her mother and relatively safe to the extent that you can be safe in a slum. They moved to the city of the dead? That is where she was essentially raised. And then she met a guy. She met an American contract oil worker. Love story. Knowing that she didn't have much of a shot with Muslim men, given the fact that she wasn't a virgin, Omaima was immediately drawn to this American man and saw him as her ticket out of the slum. Incredibly, Omaima ended up marrying this man, and the two moved out of Egypt and into the great state of Texas. Unfortunately, barely one month after their arrival back to the States, the newlyweds' relationship took a downturn that led to instant divorce. Mm. Now, at just 18 years old, in the year 1986, for context, Omaima found herself alone, living in California by this point, barely able to speak English, and lacking the necessary skills to secure stable employment. But what she did have were exquisite good looks. Described in most sources as looking exotic, Omaima was petite with a beautiful dark complexion, dark eyes, thick curly hair, and according to the Los Angeles Times, cut glass cheekbones. 
As such, she explored opportunities in modeling while also taking on various nannying positions as well. But each job was very short-lived, very quick, no career in either industry, modeling or childcare. Yeah, she was just dabbling everywhere. She was doing what she needed to feed herself. Since neither of these jobs yielded the financial results that she really desired, it led her to explore more unconventional methods of obtaining funds. Pop quiz. Oh, back to back. What unconventional method did Omaima employ to obtain money? 1986, right? Correct. So you're going to make up some 1986 shit, I bet. Yes, sir. She was breakdancing in Venice Beach for money. (laughs) (laughs) A, she sold pictures of her feet to a fetish magazine called Foot Worship. Trendsetter. B, she tied men up during sex and robbed them. C, she worked as a drug mule for a little gang known as the Crips. Wow. So she basically invented selling feet pics. She, what was the second one? Tied men up during sex. Tied men up during sex and robbed them. I mean, that's not really a way to earn money, but I guess it is. Or she was a drug mule for the Crips. I believe that she did B. Yes. Shot in the dark, or you just really felt that that would be the way she would have gone about getting money? Um, I was thinking about the fact that she would be using that as an opportunity not only to make money, but to kind of hurt men, because that's obviously what she would want to do with the upbringing. That wow. Very insightful. And you're like 20 steps ahead, which is great <laughs> because you're, you're really in these cases now. I love uh, it. By the way, I also hate, this happened during the uh, high heel homicide case. Mm-hmm where Jerry Brudos like punched the woman in the in the breast. Mm-hmm. That really bothers me to hear that. I do know why, but it's just like, it bothers me a little bit more than it should. Because it's it's such a female part of a body. Mm-hmm. Well, punch. that's the point. I know. It's right, like, dude, right. just say you hate women and move on. You don't have to punch well, them in the tits. God, it gets a lot worse than punching someone in the breasts. Yeah. For but, these people. But punched her in the tits was a banger from that episode. It's a good line. You got to make a sound bite out of that. But it just really bothers me that they would go that far and be that specific about it. Well, in the case of Jerry Brudos, he also... He did way worse. ...amputated breasts and made paperweights out of them. Yeah, I mean, So, you know, he just had a thing with women. <laughs> <laughs> so, Omaima tied men up during sex, took their money, and stole their cars. In 1990, Omaima robbed her then-boyfriend, a man named Robert Hansen, at gunpoint in his home in Huntington Beach. That is wild. She'd also begun to shoplift at pharmacies as well, causing run-ins with the law. During one instance of shoplifting at a nearby department store, Omaima had a physical and somewhat sexual altercation with two female security guards. The district attorney who prosecuted Omaima at the time following this incident reported that Omaima had aggressively bitten the breast of one of the security guards, nearly biting it entirely off. Oh, my God. While also grabbing the crotch of the other guard before being apprehended and sent to prison for a few months. Wow. So it's not just Jerry Bruto's men going for these sexual organs. Yeah. I guess it's a weak point also. We do see the development of some impulsive and explosive behaviors going on at this point in Omaima's life. Now, Omaima was constantly pursuing less than wholesome ways to get her hands on money, which is somewhat understandable given how desperate and isolated she was. She'd often leave bars with different men in hopes of securing a lasting relationship with someone, anyone willing to provide for her. Yeah. Now, opinions of Omaima tend to vary at this point in the case. Some categorize her as a gold digger because she'd usually go after older men, 
with money, while others see her as a desperate young woman in a foreign land grappling with a lack of support and not having any skills. It also was, just to contextualize it, a very different time in 1986. 1990, but yeah. Oh, it was 1990. Mm-hmm. Still, it's not... There was like some movies about women working and it was like a big deal because fucking a woman was working. Oh my God, let's make a movie about it. Right. It wasn't like... There's literally a movie called Working Woman. And 9 to 5. And 9 to 5. I think Working Woman might be With about Dolly a sex Parton, worker. Yeah. Working Girl is the name of it. Yeah. With Dolly Parton and our girl, Lily Tomlin. No. you never seen 9 to 5? No. Lily Tomlin's in it? I watched that movie like a hundred times when I was a kid. Well, you have two sisters. True, but it was (laughs) me putting it on. (laughs) (laughs) It was Omaima's desire for stability and financial security that ultimately led her to cross paths with Bill Nelson in October 1991. They met while playing pool and having drinks at a bar in Orange County, California. Bill, who operated a computer refurbishing business out of his home, was 56 years old making him 33 years older than Omaima. How old was she? 56 minus 33? 23. 23. Originally hailing from Texas, Bill Nelson had a very, very big personality and a flashy, unique style, wearing kinky red cowboy boots, a prominent shiny gold belt buckle, and driving a flashy red Corvette. Oh, I pictured him in a pickup truck, but go on. No, no, no. Bill was also a father to five children and had 17 grandchildren, further giving the impression that he was stable and had all of his ducks in a row. Yeah, he's got like 17 ducks in a row. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the sexiest part about him to Omaima. Yeah, not his red boots. Not the red boots. That would have turned Jerry Brudos on. Yes, it would have. Yeah. Man, that case really stuck. Punched her in the tits. (laughs) Favorite case. Bill did indeed have a bit of a wild past, however, in spite of his seemingly very stable, grown-up-like affect at this point. He did everything big. Because during the 1980s, Bill was a pilot in Laredo, Texas, where he flew DC-3 propeller planes back and forth across the border of Mexico smuggling marijuana until he was arrested and jailed for four years. Oh, boy. There were also rumors suggesting Bill's involvement with the CIA at some point. Dang. Needless to say... Young, beautiful, and desperate Omaima entered a relationship with old, Texas bold, seemingly stable Bill Nelson. He was single at the time? Yes, he was. Divorced? Yes. If memory serves me correctly, he was divorced, but don't hold me to that because I don't remember and I don't want to be wrong. Five kids, 17 grandchildren. And single and ready to mingle. (laughs) Hell yeah. Less than a month after meeting... Omaima and Bill got married in Phoenix, Arizona by a justice of the peace. Wow. Days after their nuptials, Bill and Omaima went down to Arkansas to meet Bill's family. And when they did, Bill's children were far from impressed with their new stepmother. Because they were older than her. That's exactly right. Omaima was only 23 years old at the time. She was younger than some of his children. Yeah. This age gap raised concerns among his children, especially considering that their father had only known his new bride for less than a month before tying the knot. I mean, what could go wrong? He's a rich Texas boy with red cowboy boots, meets a young lady. It's just a case of... Love at first sight, obviously. A young lady. You just aged yourself. Why? Because only like men of a certain age refer to women as a young lady. I've been doing that since I was like seven. <laughs> An old soul. However, we do have to acknowledge the fact 
that Bill and Omaima did seem to have some kind of genuine affection for each other, but it was possibly more a result of meeting each other's distinct needs at that particular juncture in their lives, right? Yeah, he was an older like- guy with this like hot young fling, maybe making him feel young again. Yeah. And she wanted the older stable daddy, yeah. basically. So then how, if there are this match made in heaven, just one month later on November 28th, 1991, which was Thanksgiving, by the way, did buckets of Bill's blood wind up all over their apartment. Oh my God, wait, hold on. So they met, a month later got married, and then a month later, she killed him. Yes. His kids must have been absolutely fucking devastated. Absolutely devastated. They didn't like her when they met her. They had this sixth sense, if you will, that something yeah. was not Well, right. listen, let's say you're a 28 and 29-year-old kid, uh, child of a 56-year-old man. Mm-hmm. He rolls in with a 23-year-old. Your first thought is, oh, she's after him for his money. Mm-hmm. I hope he lives for a long time and she disappears at some point along the way. Right. Unless they truly love each other. Mm-hmm. But first meeting, that's what you're thinking. And then to, uh, fucking a month later, she killed him. Those kids... I mean, it just confirmed their deepest fear that she was not who she purported to be. They probably didn't even have the fear that she was going to kill him, just the fear that she was with him for the wrong reason. Exactly. That's right. enough of a reason not to like somebody. Right. I don't think for one second they thought she was going to kill him, but no. they definitely, oh definitely God. did not approve. So to answer the million-dollar question of what the hell happened, we must begin first by dissecting the events that transpired on the morning of December 1st. Because it was on this date when law enforcement first encountered that bloodbath of a crime scene that I described in the intro, which is the same day on which Omaima was pacing the floor of the precinct for four hours. So here's what happened on December 1st, 1991. Just after 9 a.m., Omaima drove Bill's red Corvette to the home of her ex-boyfriend, a man named Jose Esquivel, and proceeded to vigorously knock on his door for several minutes. Vigorously. She was pounding that shit. Well, that was a better way to say it. Pounding the door? No, vigorously. Oh, yeah. However, since Jose did not recognize the expensive car parked outside, he chose not to open the door. Four hours later at 1 p.m., the knocking on the door resumed. This time, he noticed his disheveled ex-girlfriend, Omaima, whom he had briefly dated a year earlier and had not heard from since. Yeah, he's probably like, what the fuck are you doing here? Omaima was covered in dry blood and displayed bruises and cuts all over her body. She was absolutely frantic and explained to Jose that her husband of just a few weeks had tied her up on Thanksgiving, which was November 28th. Yeah, right. Raped and beat her. Then Omaima confessed to Jose that after breaking free, right, because she again claimed that Bill tied her up, she smashed a lamp over Bill's head before stabbing him with the scissors, killing him. Omaima went on to explain that out of sheer panic, she spent the next two days dismembering her husband's body and placing his body parts <laughs> out into of large black trash bags. Sorry, I cut them all up. I was just freaking out. And know what else to do for that's 48 like, straight hours. It's like Cash when he's home alone. Oh, that's why he records <laughs> with us. Sorry, I ripped the house apart. I thought you were never, ever, 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 ever coming back. <laughs> Omaima then asked Jose if she could borrow his truck to dispose of her husband's remains. 
She also asked Jose if he would help her to remove Bill's teeth from his severed head. Jesus, lady. Presumably to make it more difficult for authorities to ever make an identification should the head be discovered. Omaima offered to pay Jose $75,000 and to give him two of Bill's motorcycles if he agreed to help her. Pop quiz. What happened next? Oh, man. A, Jose agreed to help in exchange for the payment. B, Jose told her to get out, prompting Omaima to attack him with a kitchen knife. C, Jose narked and called the police. C. Yes. Yeah. Jose told Omaima that he would help her, but that he needed 30 minutes to go and grab his truck. You really mailed that one in, huh? What? (laughs) You really mailed that pop quiz in. What? (laughs) Let me tell you something. I rehearsed this with Dave and he got it wrong. Thank you very much. Did he really? Yeah. He thought that um, he took the payment. He's like, two motorcycles. He definitely took payment. Yeah, but this happened on December 1st, right? Yeah. And then she was in jail with the cops December 1st. (sighs) Didn't mean they, it was because he called it it. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm giving you constructive criticism okay. so that you can do better and I can do worse. What do you think happens when I get home and I fuck up? I Pop like- quiz. A, <laughs> I stay up all night making sure that our next case is a banger. <laughs> B, I let it go. I don't, I don't think about it. C, uh, <laughs> um, I think about ways to get back at you somehow. C. <laughs> nope. <laughs> A and C. A and C, exactly. Yeah. So after getting into his car to supposedly go and get his truck, this is what Jose told Amaima he was doing. By the way, the next pop quiz is going to fucking absolutely eviscerate me, I'm oh, sure. because I got on I'm it. getting too cocky right now. You can count on it. Oh, boy. Now I'm scared. Rather than getting his truck, Jose instead drove to a nearby payphone and immediately called the police. Good job. Consequently, the next knock on his front door had not been from Jose returning with his truck, but rather from the Costa Mesa Police Department. And when they arrived asking questions to Omaima, who was in the apartment, officers were met by a very confused Omaima who asserted that she hadn't made any such confessions to Jose about killing her husband, Bill, and Bill had simply been away on a business trip to Florida. Yeah, I don't know whose blood that is. She professed total and complete ignorance regarding the source of Jose's fabricated narrative and the reasons behind his vexing call to authorities. But then, officers noticed a black garbage bag on the front seat of a sexy red Corvette parked out front. Mm, registered to a Bill Nelson. And when they opened the bag, their suspicions about the strangely behaved woman oh, were horrifyingly validated. Body parts? Because inside the bag, wrapped in blood-stained newspaper, was a set of human lungs. Oh my God. I could have never guessed if you gave me a pop Fuck, quiz, that should have been a pop quiz. I would have bombed that one. Okay. I would have went for hands or thigh, like feet or legs or thighs. Would you have head? Thigh? Let's continue this dialogue. <laughs> yeah, let's keep this dialogue going. <laughs> After being brought down to the police station, Omaima paced the interrogation room, as mentioned, for four hours. She indicated to the lead detective on the case, former Costa Mesa Police Sergeant Bob Phillips, that the body parts discovered in the car must have been placed there by Bill, who had a past criminal history. Yeah. In fact, Omaima went on to allege that Bill was not just a criminal and a murderer, but also a rapist who not only raped her just days earlier, but had likely also raped other women as well. Then, 
seemingly out of nowhere in the middle of the interrogation that was now happening, mm-hmm. Omaima began referring to herself in the third person while going on and on about hallucinations. Now, as a reminder, Omaima had indeed been taken to the hospital following her allegations of rape, but the examination did not show any signs of vaginal or anal trauma. Mm -hmm. This is also when investigators went to her apartment to conduct a thorough search, which is when they discovered a drop of blood on the doorknob, a pool of blood on the carpet, and a blood-soaked mattress in the bedroom. But that is not all that they discovered. Mm. Pop quiz. I'm so nervous now. Following the initial discovery of blood in the bedroom... What subsequent horrific finding did investigators make? A, a human head in a potted plant by the back door. Mm, B, your business. human hands cooking in a deep fryer in the kitchen. Uh, the woman from Australia. C, a human penis hanging in the coat closet. Lorena Bobby. Fuck, I am obsessed with you right now. <laughs> I could not be any happier to be doing this podcast with you. I am so proud of you. Uh, that you're really remembering our past cases. You're looping it back. Good for you. Yeah. So a potted plant with a head in it and a spit hood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> severed hand soup or a penis hanging in a closet. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. This one's going to hurt. I can feel it. It's like black coffee. Um, C. A human penis? Nope. No, a cow penis. Neither. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, A potted plant with a head in it. No, my friend. I am back. Payback is a bitch. Yeah. No. B, hands boiling in a fucking, why? Recently cooked. Oh, cannibalism. Oh, God, I forgot that was in the nightmarish landscape. Yeah, yeah. So just wait, okay? Mm. Recently cooked in oil in a deep fryer on the stove alongside Thanksgiving turkey. Fried hands? Were Bill Nelson's hands. Oh, my God. Back then, they didn't know how dangerous it was to fry stuff inside. Yeah, I guess that's really all that we can take away from this. (laughs) (laughs) One source said that she breaded the hands first. But I didn't find any further validation on the preparation, so I chose not to include it. Do you need any further validation? I need loads of validation before I bring it on this podcast. Hand cutlets. (laughs) (laughs) And just as police officers had done in the meth mutilation and minding shibusiness episode we covered, the officers here in this case were also forced to engage in a macabre scavenger hunt to find the rest of the missing body parts. Terrible. It's really, really fucking tragic. Here's what they discovered. In the kitchen garbage can were parts of Bill Nelson's hip mixed together with turkey and cranberry sauce. Oh, my God. Wrapped in foil in the freezer, tucked behind frozen vegetables, was Bill's severed and completely cooked head. Fried? It was likely fried. The skin had been warped and burnt along the edges. God, these fucking poor cops. And poor Bill. Poor Bill. My heart breaks for him. Now, the only thing that I can't reconcile is whether or not he was actually sexually assaulting Omaima. Yeah, this, is this a Lorena Bobbitt situation? Right, exactly. We're going to get on to discuss that. So keep that in your back pocket. But it's hard because on one hand, certainly you empathize when you hear about this human who was mutilated in the way that he was. Yeah. But on the other hand, you just wonder, 
what kind of person he was. It's just a very sticky situation. But let me continue here. Yeah. Throughout the rest of the apartment were more and more black garbage bags filled with human remains, as well as suitcases and cardboard boxes filled to the brim with flesh and body parts. What? I mean, she just went absolutely buck wild for oh, three yeah. days. And inside the bathroom, hanging above the bathtub, Catherine Knight style, was Bill Nelson's chest and torso without any limbs attached. Also absent from this absolutely brutal scene was, of note, Bill's penis. Investigators also discovered a broken lamp as well as a clothing iron covered in blood and hair in the bedroom. A clothing iron covered in blood and hair. Yes. Okay. Now, there was indeed evidence to support Omima's narrative of being tied up in bed, as she alleged, okay. as there was rope lying on the floor next to the bed, okay? And there were also broken bedposts. However, when forensic analysts examined Bill's ankles, which they eventually found, oh my ligature God. marks revealed that he had been the one who was tied up. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. After weighing the various discovered body parts of Bill Nelson, forensic analysts concluded that more than 100 pounds were missing compared to the weight listed on his driver's license. Wow. It was then concluded based on neighbors' accounts of hearing, quote, constant chopping sounds as well as a garbage disposal running almost nonstop for the past two days yeah. that the rest of Bill Nelson had been skinned and carved up like a Thanksgiving turkey before being stuffed down the kitchen drain. This, of course, included his missing limbs, some of them, as well as his penis. Mm. When investigators returned to Omaima in the interrogation room, she began to allege that she'd been in a trance following her attack and that when she came to, Bill had already been dead and dismembered. She vehemently denied cooking and or eating any part of Bill, but then went on to say something inside of her made her do it, something like demons. So she's speaking out of both sides of her mouth, let's say. Yeah, okay. Omaima then switched gears again and claimed self-defense, contending that Bill, besides involving her in sexual activities for money, was a BDSM enthusiast who frequently bound her against her will and sexually assaulted her. Mm. Which is not a BDSM thing. I just want to make that clear. Like no, BDSM is a fetish, and if both parties are consenting or all parties are consenting, totally fine, do you? But in this case, she's alleging that they were doing BDSM against her will, and then he would rape her. Well, BDSM against your will is a crime. It's not BDSM. Any sexual act is, exactly. Yeah. But I feel like I didn't make that distinction clear when I originally said it. Oh, and it is crystal So I clear. wanted to go back. Omaima went on to allege that Bill had raped her on Thanksgiving morning, and she feared he would kill her, which prompted her to kill him first. Following this initial interrogation, Sergeant Phillips, who I mentioned earlier, being the lead detective on the case, had later gone on to say that Omaima Nelson was the most bizarre and sick individual he'd ever had the occasion to meet. Yeah, of course. Deputy District Attorney Randy Pulaski of Orange County, however, argued during trial that Omaima was a con artist who targeted older men and then used bondage sex games as a pretext to rob them. Oh, yeah. Yep, and that is exactly what she had so done. So she'd be like, tie me up. I want you to do things to me. And then she'd be like, all right, let me tie you up now. Your turn. Yeah. Wow. And that could be what the rope was, right? And they yeah. did find those ligature marks on Bill's ankles. Maybe he did tie her up. Maybe. But it was with, like, she asked for it. 
according to the prosecution. Yeah. And to support this By claim, the way, she asked for it. Sounds terrible. She was a willing participant. <laughs> perhaps, right. <laughs> to support this claim, the prosecution added additional charges to Almima's case relating to that 1990 incident in which she reportedly tied up her ex-boyfriend, Robert Hansen. I mentioned this in the beginning of the case. Yeah. Before physically assaulting him, holding him at gunpoint, and demanding money. So now they've added those charges onto this. Oh, okay. The trial of Omaima Nelson revealed very disturbing details, including her interview with a state-appointed psychiatrist named Dr. David J. Scheffner, in which she described dressing in red attire, specifically red shoes, red hat, and red lipstick, before preparing and cooking Bill's rib meat and then eating it with barbecue sauce. Oh, my God. While at the kitchen table dining on her dead husband's body, according to the psychiatrist, based on what Omaima's recounting, she allegedly exclaimed, quote, I did his ribs just like in a restaurant. It's so sweet. It's so delicious. I like mine tender. End quote. Well, yeah, you put fucking barbecue sauce on it. And according to one source I read, which is a book called True Crime, Cannibal Killers, Volume 1, which, what does that say? That say how many cannibals there are. Omaima later joked around with police and said, nothing tastes as good as the man I married. It's the sauce that does it. Exactly. That's why it's sweet. Why would, you know what I mean? Of course it's sweet. Is this a real conversation? Well, I'm, we're having? <laughs> she's saying, oh, his ribs were so sweet. Like, yeah, you put fucking sugar all over them. <laughs> oh my God. That's <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> That's all I'm thinking about is the food aspect. Obviously. Following his examination of Omaima, Dr. Scheffner diagnosed her as psychotic at the time in which she stabbed and beat her husband to death and asserted that she was absolutely in a psychotic state when she killed and then consumed Bill. Dr. Scheffner described their conversation as so bizarre, so psychotic, unlike anything he had encountered in his 20 years of practice. And this is consistent with Omaima's version of events in which she claimed to have been in a trance-like state at the time in which she exacted the murder. Or at least it, it lines up with one of her accounts. See, that's very scary. Yes, it is. I mean, listen, not excusing her, but to think that what was done to her as a little girl lodged itself in her subconscious and then one day came out in the form of a psychotic break is terrifying. Spot on. And this is what the psychiatrist and her defense attorneys go on to say yeah. in her defense. And the psychiatrist wasn't defending her one way or the other. He was just presenting his analysis. Yeah. But in addition to diagnosing her as psychotic, Dr. Scheffner also indicated that Omaima suffered from a number of other mental disorders as well that had been caused by the repeated physical and sexual abuse she had endured over the course of her entire life from the time in which she was a child in Egypt through adulthood. And again, this is consistent with Omaima's assertion that when she castrated Bill, because this is what she asserted, it must have been during a, quote, unconscious act of revenge for the indignity suffered in childhood. Upon examination, it was also reported that Omaima had also been behaving in a very childlike manner and that she had openly begun to fantasize about being a descendant from ancient Egyptians who were speaking with her and acting through her. These same ancient Egyptians, who appeared in the form of two blood-soaked females, evidently instructed Omaima to cut up Bill's body and scatter his parts all over the place to prevent him from moving on to the afterlife. And Omaima wanted to make damn sure oh. that when she died and went to the afterlife, 
Bill wouldn't be there. So now she's suggesting that these hallucinations instructed her to dismember Bill so that she would be free of him in the afterlife. See, if I ever, God forbid, saw two blood-soaked Egyptian women, I would probably do what they Turn were asking Turn off the computer. <laughs> <laughs> I would do what they were asking me to do because I'd be so scared of them. If you really and truly believe yeah, that's what I'm saying. exactly that those blood-soaked women were standing in front of you. Yeah, and exactly. I could hear them. Well, that's why the state of somebody's mental health has to be considered when you're analyzing a crime. Still needs to go away. Absolutely. And also just because somebody alleges something does not mean it's true. And that's yeah. why there is a jury. That's right. So during trial, Omaima took the stand. Her defense attorney, public defender Thomas G. Mooney, went on to highlight Omaima's harrowing childhood in Egypt, where she had her clitoris crudely removed oh. during horrific act of female genital mutilation, mm. which is absolutely atrocious. Ever since that savage procedure and the subsequent formation of scar tissue on her genitals, sexual intimacy remained painful for Omaima, to say nothing of the degrading sexual humiliations she's had to engage in in order to survive later in life, according to her. According to the defense, Bill would force Omaima to perform oral sex on him multiple times a day, and that when she'd comply and she felt she had no choice, mm -hmm. he'd degrade her for doing it. Omaima's attorney went on to explain that she presented clear signs of PTSD and asserted that nearly everyone in her family had either beaten, tortured, or molested her. And despite the fact that there hadn't been any signs of rape during her recent medical examination, the defense used a forensic psychologist to claim that Bill had indeed been sexually abusing her. Omaima Nelson was actually the first defendant to use the battered wife defense in Orange County, California, which we'll touch upon in more detail in a bit. The defense went on to further portray Bill Nelson as a sadistic abuser who not only subjected his wife to sexual abuse, but also to ongoing physical and psychological torment as well. For instance, they claim that Bill had once callously taken Omaima's cat off her lap while driving one day and tossed it out of the window of the moving car. Like an anger man? Is that what happens? <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, anger man. His dog gets thrown out. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's Jack Black. He takes the dog and kicks it off a bridge. Well, I'm never seeing that. But then he gets, the, the dog makes it back. Oh, well, yeah. maybe I will see it. And it is a very funny scene. It's not a real dog. Okay. He kicks the stuffed animal off the bridge. Okay, better. Much better. Yeah. I don't know if he just said that for me so I can keep going No, here. it's like a it's like part of the joke. It's oh. obviously not a real dog. Got it. The entire trial and case had been an absolute... Wait, hold on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Nope. You've never seen Anchorman? I was wondering <laughs> how you let that go. How is that even possible? We've met before, right? Yes. Okay. I don't have so much time. That movie, well, you've had 20 years to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you and no. Dave have never sat down and watched that movie? No. Has Dave seen it? Dave's seen it. I have not. I like what I like, and I tend to rewatch those movies over and over again. Yeah. So we're going to have to fix that. We'll figure it out okay. later. Okay. As I started to say, the entire trial and case had been an absolute media frenzy, as you can imagine. And where is this? In California? Yep. Orange County. Yeah. The courtroom featured horrifying photos of Bill's mutilated severed hands in the fryer. Oh, my God. His decapitated head in the freezer and his skinned torso hanging above the bathtub. The level 
of sensationalism of the trial cannot be overstated. And Omaima Nelson, of course, took center stage. Yeah. Pop quiz. All right. Who did the media constantly compare Omaima Nelson to at the time in which this case occurred? I already mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer, so he's not on this list. Okay. A, the Black Widow. B, Cleopatra. Okay. C, Hannibal Lecter. D, Frankenhooker. I don't know what a lot of that stuff is. They've said the same thing. I don't know who the Black Widow is. What? I, don't, I do know who Cleopatra is. I do know who Hannibal Lecter is. And I don't know what Frankenhooker means. But we'll figure it out. So I'm going to go with Wild Shot in the Dark, but I'm feeling confident. No, I'm not. No, you're not. You waited way too long for me to buy that. <laughs> no, I meant it when I said it, and then my brain went blank. Uh, fucking C. Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Correct. I knew it. Man, you and Dave really are just two sides of the same coin. He literally had the same open thought process that you just had. He's like, I don't know the Black Widow. Cleopatra, I don't know. What the hell is Frankenhooker? Fine, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. All right, Black Widow is the woman who, the term Black Widow, a woman who marries men and then kills them. Oh, okay. Cleopatra was said to be like very sexual. Mm -hmm. Frankenhooker was a movie around that time and is exactly what it sounds like. There was a movie that came out called Frankenhooker? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but yes. The 90s were just different. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that movie came out today. Never. There would be fucking riots in the street. It wouldn't happen. Fueled by the gruesome nature of this crime, Omaima was constantly being referred to as the real-life cannibalistic Hannibal Lecter from The Silence of the Lambs, a comparison that was highlighted by the media at every possible opportunity. Oh, they probably loved it, those media freaks. This extensive media coverage not only influenced the public's perception of Omaima, but may have also placed immense pressure on the legal proceedings as well, perhaps making it a challenging environment for a fair trial. The entire trial only lasted six days. Following deliberation, the jury found Omaima Nelson guilty of second-degree murder. They also convicted her of false imprisonment, assault, and attempted robbery of her ex-boyfriend, Robert Hansen, whom I've now mentioned twice. If you don't mind me getting off track for a second, and you, I know you don't, do you know why second degree and not first degree? I sure do. Knew it. Second degree murder is when the crime is carried out with intent, but no premeditation. Oh, okay. So like you know what you're doing, but you didn't plan it. Yeah, you did it intentionally, but it wasn't something that you exactly planned to do. Gotcha. It was okay. an in-the-moment type of thing. Okay. And on January 12th, 1993, in accordance with this conviction, Omaima Nelson received a sentence of 27 years to life in prison from Superior Court Judge Robert Fitzgerald. Despite her conviction and earlier confession of munching on Bill's ribs with barbecue sauce, Omaima has since consistently denied eating Bill. During a parole hearing in 2011, Omaima mentioned that she was, quote, not a monster and had, in fact, become a born-again Christian during her imprisonment. She said she felt remorse for killing Bill and emphasized that she never, ever harmed her new husband during their conjugal visits, despite the presence of knives in the trailer where they met and got it on, because she somehow married a much older man during her incarceration. And killed him? No, that's her point. She's oh. trying to suggest, look at oh. how good I am. Yeah. I have conjugal visits with my husband in a trailer that has knives in it, and he walks out alive every time. Yeah, without fail. 
like this was somehow supposed to prove her trustworthiness and that she should be released into society. Yeah. However, the parole board remained unconvinced and deemed her unstable and a continued danger to the safety of others. Thus, Omaima is expected to serve the remainder of her sentence. Meaning life? Meaning she's never getting out. In the tragic and brutal case of Omaima Nelson and Bill Nelson, we are confronted with a deeply troubling and complex narrative. Omaima's upbringing in Egypt, marked by the horrors of female genital mutilation and severe abuse, paints a bleak picture of her early life without question. Yeah. And I empathize with that. It is undeniably heartbreaking to consider the profound impact that these traumatic experiences likely had on her psychological health. Oh my God. What? I just had a fucking brain explosion. Oh my God. Maybe that's why men are typically more violent. Why? Because they fucking cut their foreskin off. All of them. Oh man, you had me going... No, I'm being serious. Oh, really? Being dead serious. But you're anesthetized, and it's done in a medical facility. It's done in a medical facility. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if the intention matters. And they're also much younger. That's why I said seven is like wow. Right. It's typically done like in the hospital after. Maybe imagine this: you're seven days old. Nothing. Everything feels great and horrible at the same time. You just came out of the womb. Mm And you get your foreskin cut off. Mm. And it goes into your brain. Like that, just because you don't remember it, right. your brain doesn't remember it. It's an interesting thought. Can you research it? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> Do you want me to research it? Please. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know, but Yo, I'm too lazy to find out. We really are the fucking science partners in high school where one person does all the work and the other one does like not too much work. Yeah. And they both get the A. Yep. I'm okay with that because you know what? You put in work, you just do it in your your own way. My own way. Yeah. I mean, literally anybody could do what I do. But That's not true at all. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. Nobody could do what I, I do. I got really serious. I'm doing the best at this. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it is crucial to emphasize that while one can empathize with the adversity she faced, and I do, it cannot serve as a justification for the gruesome and heinous crimes that she went on to commit. No, definitely not. The murder, dismemberment, and cannibalism of Bill Nelson represent acts of extreme violence and depravity that are not only morally reprehensible, but also, of course, highly illegal. So the punishment that she was given was deserved. Yeah. Now, this legal case raises several complex and thought-provoking questions, both about Omaima's specific case, as well as broader societal issues. First of all, mental health and criminal responsibility. Did Omaima Nelson's mental state at the time in which she carried out the crime impact her criminal responsibility? If she was deemed to have been in a psychotic state at the time in which she executed her crime, should this have impacted her sentence? Well... It depends, because while mental health problems may have affected her ability to know the difference between right and wrong at the moment in which she executed her crime, it also affected the perceived prospects for rehabilitation, perhaps, right? In other words, the judge who sentenced her had to consider whether or not her condition is treatable and whether her criminal behavior is likely or unlikely to change. In this case, the judge balanced all of the conflicting considerations and ultimately determined 
that society was in need of protection against Omaima Nelson. Yeah. And as such, she required the full sentence. When people listen to this and they go, well, I don't think she should have gotten life or I think she should have gotten life. The things that I think about are very subjective, which is meaning like, forget about the law and all that. Mm -hmm. If you were somebody, like, would you want this person to get out of jail and move into the house next door to you? Right. You know what I mean? Because you're the society that this person needs to be protected from. Correct. Unless, to your point that you've made in many cases, she shows sign of rehabilitation. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's always a gamble. I I hate to say that I trust the parole board, Mm -hmm. but I kind of do. Like, these people do it all day, every day. They kind of have their bullshit meter must be fucking so finely tuned. I mean, they wouldn't exist if we as a society were not supposed to trust their decision. Do they make mistakes? Right. And when someone goes up for parole that deserves to get out, do they deny them sometimes? Of course. Do they let people out who shouldn't be let out? Of course. But overall, I trust their ability to weigh all of the factors and also a little bit of instinct and a little bit of like looking at somebody and saying they still look like they could fucking kill somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or this person is absolutely a changed individual and they deserve a second chance. And it's more than just that moment, just to be clear. Oh, it's yeah. more than just the interview with the parole board. No, it's their behavior in the jail. Exactly. Day in, day out. Exactly. Another major and important issue that this case raises is that of domestic violence and abuse. To what extent did Omaima's allegations of domestic violence and abuse in her past contribute to her actions? How can society better address and prevent domestic violence? According to Omaima's attorney, Omaima had long been suffering from battered woman syndrome, which is now referred to as intimate partner violence or IPV. And while IPV as a defense in cases of spousal homicide has gained wider acceptance in recent times, it still remains a controversial issue. This, even if she was being abused, the fact that she was tying men up and robbing them for a living for years leading up to that, and then cut him up and dismembered him and ate him and all that stuff, like, that's not saying, oh my God, I can't take this moment anymore. I'm going to grab a knife and kill Mm -hmm. my spouse because I can't take the mental and physical abuse anymore. This is like a different level. Well, it's a level of depravity, I think, versus a level of a reaction that's sort of warranted. Like, not that killing is ever warranted. <laughs> but listen, but- if you're in a house with somebody who's, let's say you're a woman and the man is abusing you because that's more often than not how it goes. Men obviously get abused. Men too. absolutely get abused. But, but yes, if, but I hear you. I was in a house with someone who was much bigger than me and stronger than me and angrier than me and they were attacking me. I don't. I mean, they're going to, in my mind, they're going to kill me or I'm going to kill them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, we touched upon this issue in great detail in our Lorena Bobbitt episode, which I recommend people go back and listen to. But if I then cut them up... Right, well, so... eat them... Right. In her case with Lorena Bobbitt, just to go back in time a little bit, right, he raped her that night, right? Her story is that he, I believe, anally raped her the night in which she then grabbed a knife and severed his penis. And there was so much more to this case, and I'm definitely just brushing through it quickly, but... That, for me, was a a very believable reaction to the domestic violence that had been ongoing for quite some time and that that was the straw that broke the camel's back, that rape that night. And cutting off his penis, obviously, very psychologically pertinent, right? Like she's taking away that which has made her suffer. If she cut his penis off, then blew it up like a balloon and made a balloon animal out of it. And took two 
days to <laughs> fuck about with it, yeah. right? And then try to get somebody else to cover it up with her. And ha- it's a, just a different level of totally depravity. Different. Totally different. However, that said, it does not mean that we don't believe the fact that she had this traumatic past with him or with anyone else. Yeah. And that we don't think that she's warranted for not wanting to feel it and go through it anymore. Listen, at that point also, I have to imagine if you're the victim of domestic abuse, like severe domestic abuse where you wind up killing the person, in my mind, I'm like, I would be thinking probably leading up to it, not in the moment because you're just fueled with adrenaline at that point, but leading up to it, if I go to jail, I go to jail. Yeah. It is what it is. You pick your poison. Yeah. At that moment, right? You're in in a way worse jail in in a home with a domestic, uh, a partner who's domestic. Yeah, well said. With a partner who's abusive. Well said. Another issue that this case raises centers on parole and rehabilitation, which we touched upon. Should individuals like Omaima Nelson, who have committed heinous atrocities, ever be considered for parole or rehabilitation programs? What criteria should be used to make such decisions, right? And there's no answer to this here and now, and we touched upon it already, so I won't belabor this point, but it's just another issue that this case raises. And what about media coverage and public opinion? How does extensive media coverage of high-profile criminal cases impact public opinion and the legal process? Did comparing Omaima to Jeffrey Dahmer and Hannibal Lecter influence the fairness of her trial? I mean, they compared it to a movie character, which is weird. Hannibal Lecter? Yeah. I mean, it was 1991. I know, but like, what are you doing comparing her to a fictional movie character? Yeah. Strange. Jeffrey Dahmer was was probably more yeah. appropriate, although... The Zodiac Killer or yeah, Son of Sam or something that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Hannibal Lecter, it's a fucking fictional character. Yeah, but I guess his, the cannibalism is what they were kind of spinning off and the height of the movie itself. Yeah, 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 you yeah, know? yeah. So anyway, these are just some questions that highlight the complexities and ethical dilemmas arising in criminal cases like Omaima Nelson's. Yeah. Prompting discussions about the legal system mental health, domestic violence, and the balance between justice and rehabilitation. And snoring dogs. And snoring Cashy. Mm-hmm. This case is tragic on so many levels, right? It's undeniable. At its core, it represents a horrifying act of violence and cannibalism that is deeply disturbing. It's a stark reminder of the capacity for human cruelty. And additionally... It's tragic from a psychological perspective because it highlights the potential consequences of severe childhood trauma and abuse, potentially. Omaima's upbringing, marked by FGM and sexual humiliation, underscores the long-lasting impact of such experiences on individuals' mental health and behavior. Furthermore, the media sensationalism surrounding the case likely influenced public opinion and added an element of spectacle to a profoundly heartbreaking event. And and his kids and grandkids had to live through all yes, of that. Yes, and they've been very vocal during her parole hearings, obviously speaking against her ever being released. Yeah. In sum, the Omaima Nelson case is a tragic narrative of violence, trauma, and the enduring effects of abuse. Yeah, I hope those uh I hope those kids are doing okay. I know I they're too. obviously adults now, but uh I mean they're probably grandparents because they were adults in the nineties, so yeah. Yeah, their life. I, I mean, I hope they're they were fucking. I just feel like at that it's at some point if something so big happens in your life, your life kind of becomes defined. I think you're right. That, you know, sadly, I mean? yeah. I don't know. I just hope they're doing okay. I um, do too. Yeah. All right. So if you made it this far, thanks for spending this much time with us. It can't be understated that how much we appreciate people 
sticking it out oh, all the way to the end. You guys, Tank and I talk about you all the time yeah. and our gratitude for having you on, on this journey with us. Thank you for listening. Again, we love you. We do talk about you. We're obsessed with you. It's a little weird. I hope you're okay with it. And at this point, we'll just have to say, we'll see you at the next episode. Yes, we will. Thanks for listening. Say bye, Cash. <laughs> bye. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.